You're listening to Environmental Investing, the show where we explore market-based approaches to environmental challenges. I'm Aaron Appleton, and on today's show, divesting from fossil fuels. Can having coal, oil, or natural gas companies in your portfolio expose you to increased risk? Nature is the capital upon which all economies and all nations are actually dependent. $7.2 trillion are brought to the United States alone by ocean-related businesses. We have 38 established environmental financial markets. Energy returned on energy invested. The cleaner company had a higher P.E. ratio. On this episode, we have Brett Fleischman joining us over the phone from San Francisco. Brett is the senior analyst for 350.org. Through this role, he focuses on the campaign to divest from fossil fuels. Prior to joining 350.org, Brett has had an amalgam of rich experiences, including working in Washington, D.C. for the economist Jeremy Rifkin at the Foundation on Economic Trends, instructing experiential college-accredited courses on development economics in Bolivia, Peru, and Laos, and even organizing an epic road trip that started in Colorado and ended deep in the Patagonia Mountains of southern Chile. Hi, Brett. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, to start things off, I'd love for you to give a brief overview of the work that you're involved in. So I work for 350.org, and we're a bit of a hub for the global divestment movement. And I should be clear that we call it a movement as opposed to a campaign, because there's a little over a 1,000 divestment campaigns globally. And these are individual divestment campaigns focused on an institution like a school endowment or a pension system or a faith-based institution where groups of people are coming together and asking their institutions to do the right thing and get rid of these holdings in coal, oil, and gas. So here at 350, we, we have a digital support and communication support and organizing support. So we like provide tools for these campaigners to help them pressure their institutions to divest. What my role here is at 350 is the financial community liaison to the global movement. I communicate with the investor side of the discourse and talking about the financial arguments. And then I also produce and disseminate financial arguments for divestment. So I'm curious to hear about your story. Like, how did you first get involved in this work and what led you to where you are now? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I sort of stumbled upon 350 in the divestment campaign in some ways. I studied economics. I actually taught economics, development economics in Latin America and then studied a graduate degree at the new school in New York. And that was during sort of the height of the Occupy movement. So the really interesting elements of inequality and uh, economic justice were the conversation was steeped in those issues. And it was an exciting time to be studying the problems of the world through an economic lens. And then went from there to, to this tank in D.C. doing energy policy that was mostly focused on policy in the EU uh, through sort of like a, a course of events landed in the Bay Area and had a meeting with folks from 350 who had just launched this divestment campaign and didn't really know what the response would be. And it sort of immediately, the response was robust. It was like, you know, hundreds of campuses across the nation were launching these divestment campaigns. And because the container of the divestment campaign is 
the market context when we were talking about stocks, there was a lot of questions like, what is a stock and what are asset classes and uh, what's tracking there and all these things. And in my conversation with the folks at 350, we, we need somebody here who can help the movement walk through that side of the, the argument. Can you further explain what divesting is and also why it's important to divest from fossil fuels? Practically, or maybe more technically, divestment is the opposite of investing, where you have investments and then you pull those investments out. But that happens all the time, and it's not really called divestment. It's just sort of like reallocation or selling off a stock. More holistically, the word divestment is much more of a political statement that you're rejecting that investment opportunity for a political or moral reason. So historically, there have been divestment campaigns for Darfur, tobacco, South Africa, apartheid, those moral movements that were asking institutions to make statements by divesting their holdings in those industries. And I think the, the other important element to lay out from a historical perspective is that in almost every divestment campaign from adult services to Darfur and tobacco in South Africa, divestment campaigns were successful in lobbying for restrictive legislation. So here's, here's sort of like the linear equation of why divestment is a successful tactic. So you have a campaign that pushes for divestment in institution, especially institutions that represent large swaths of the population, like a pension fund. For like, for example, the California State Pension Fund, tens of thousands of state workers. If they divest, that's a that's a pretty large state. We represent California state workers, and we will no longer invest in tobacco. That statement leads to stigmatization or sort of like a social rejection of a company, and that social rejection leads to political space. So it's sort of like motivation in the political sphere for restrictive legislation. And I should be clear that historically, divestment does not affect the bottom lines of companies directly. Even if the state of California, which is the nation's largest pension system, takes all of their money out of, out of those holdings, those companies are relatively unaffected. Um, it's because it's sort of like a small portion of their cash flow and they can uh, get investment cash in other places. And the, the real effect comes in that political space that the divestment movement creates. That's what we're trying to do. We're creating political space for restrictive legislation on carbon. To focus on the financial argument, will you elaborate on the economic rationale behind divesting from fossil fuels? Okay, so you, you sort of like hit on an important element that divestment is really broken down into these two large buckets of discourse, the moral argument and the financial argument. And it sort of like covered the moral argument, motivation, and this is something that one of our founders, Bill McKinnon, says all the time. If it's wrong to wreck the planet, it's wrong to profit from that wreckage. And that's like the driver for the, the moral argument. The watch the campaign really started with this do the math tour where Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and a few other folks toured the United States and talked about these three iconic numbers that we should focus on as, a, as like a, a, a climate framing for where we are. And the first number was two degrees centigrade. And that's the threshold for catastrophic climate tipping point. If we increase global temperatures by two degrees, toast. And we're about at one degrees. We're halfway there at this point. 
So that was the first number. And the second number was 565 gigatons or billion tons of CO2. And in 2012, that was the year that the Institute of Mass Tour was launched, we talked about this correlation between amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and increase in temperature. 565 billion tons was the amount of CO2 that would bring us over that two-degree threshold, sort of our carbon budget, if you will. And then the third number is 2,795 gigatons of CO2. And that is the amount of CO2 or potential CO2 in the reserves underground at the time. So coal, oil, and gas companies and sovereign nations as well uh, held five times more CO2 in the reserves than we could safely burn. And that, that was sort of the equation there. You can sort of like make an, an easy leap there to the, as you call it, the, the economic argument for divestment. That's that the value of these companies is based off of those reserves. You can sort of think of it in, in terms of any other type of company, like uh, potential sales in the future. If, uh, if you think like Levi's jeans has a warehouse of jeans, the value of Levi's future profits is based in that warehouse of jeans, how many jeans they're going to sell in the future. It's the same way with ExxonMobil. Really the deep value of the company on the market is the amount of fossil fuels they're going to sell in the future. So what we know is that if the companies on the market have five times as much reserves underground as can be sold, then they're drastically overvalued. That's the stranded assets theory, that many of the assets on the books of these companies will become stranded, as in unburnable, and there will be a significant devaluation of those companies on the market, meaning your stocks will go down and you'll lose a lot of money. So we actually just helped publish a, a paper the data was done by a group called Trillium Asset Management, who calculated the loss of fossil fuel by the California State Pension Funds. They lost $5 billion in assets just in the last year from coal, oil, and gas. So we're sort of seeing this play out in real time, especially in the coal sector. Coal is like the low-hanging fruit. You know, we're seeing like large, some of the largest coal companies in the United States file for bankruptcy. This is a very real issue that's playing out in real time and people are losing money. If you can think of a particular story that stands out to you, will you describe one success that you've had with divestment? There are a lot of successes. This is a movement that is doing quite well. There's over a thousand campaigns out there. And the last time I checked, I think there was like 283 institutions that had divested. There are a lot of success stories from the Rockefeller Brother Funds. J.D. Rockefeller was like the, the grandfather of what now is ExxonMobil. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is the, uh, essentially like the largest pool of money, $900 billion pool of money. Uh, it's divested from coal. Syracuse University, British Medical Association, the Lutheran World Federation. There's a heap of faith-based institutional investors who have shifted money out of fossil fuels. World Council of Churches, for example. And, and then we're sort of like starting to see the beginnings of movement in the pension space here in the United States. There's sort of the laggards on the diffusion of innovation bell curve. The, the, the slowest and most conservative institutional investors are U.S. pension funds. Providence, Rhode Island, pension fund divested. And then 
we'll see California state pension funds divest from coal in like two weeks. It's an exciting time. Lots of divestment announcements every month and sort of like lots of new momentum building up at the grassroots level. Is there a fossil fuel company or rebranded energy company that you think is taking steps in a positive direction? Uh, perhaps there's one that's devoting a significant amount of resources to research and development in renewables? The answer is really no. I should just caution the listeners out there that any fossil fuel company that's trying to rebrand themselves as an energy company as opposed to an oil or gas or coal company, the numbers are just not there. These companies are spending much, much more on lobbying against climate policy than they are on, on their R&D department for renewable energy development. There was a peak of renewable energy spending back in 2009 by five oil majors, and that peak is far gone, including from BP, who tried to rebrand themselves beyond petroleum. And at that peak, Shell, BP, and Total, they had the amount of CapEx, like capital expenditure that they were spending on renewable energy development, reached a peak of like 1.5% or 2% in the case of BP, of uh, their total expenditure. And now that's sort of back down far below half a percent. And much of their spending in that space, in the space of alternative energy, is either in biofuels or in a much larger space. It's just money given to universities who have programs to study this stuff. And then they can greenwash their talking points by saying we give X million dollars to Stanford University, who has like a climate program or solar engineering program or something along those lines. There's not a single fossil fuel company that I would be comfortable pointing to saying you know, they're going in the right direction. What do you think might happen if we don't divest and instead continue burning the remaining fossil fuel reserves before we transition to alternative energy sources? There was a, a recent report that came out from scientists at MIT that said, if we burn less than our carbon budget, we have a relatively reasonable chance of staying below that two degrees. And at business as usual, meaning the rate of mitigation that we are producing right now, we're headed for about four degrees increase in global temperatures. And this is in Celsius. If we burn everything, as your question is pointing to, that's underground right now that we know of, and you should also know that the industry is spending billions of dollars every year to find new fossil fuels that we don't know of yet. But if we burn everything we know of underground now, the planet would warm by nine degrees. And that is an unrecognizable planet. Human beings would have a very hard time surviving on this planet at a two-degree threshold. That's far, far beyond what we can imagine on this planet is habitable. To change direction a bit, can you think of a specific book, article, or film that has most inspired you to pursue the path that you're on now? Um, back when I worked in Bolivia, I was reading The Shock Doctrine, which is a really interesting investigative journalist book on development economics. That really opened my eyes to just like corruption in large macroeconomic spheres. But it's so personal. And a lot of the work we do now is just with regular humans, like the board of the largest pools of money in the United States, the boards of these pension funds, are a teacher and a cop and a fireman and a real estate guy. 
they have floors to the depth of their knowledge in the investment space and just try and do their best. You know, they have this fiduciary duty to like maximize returns for their pensioners. In the end, they're just normal guys. I think that that's been like a really interesting experience to deal with the conversation of macroeconomic corruption from the fossil fuel industry with Joe the fireman on a pension board that serves hundreds of thousands of people and manages billions of dollars. That's something that we've been dealing with a little bit. I'm definitely a uh, macroeconomics geek. I like those types of books. Thanks for sharing. Again, that book is The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which I'll also link to on the show notes on environmentalinvesting.com. On each episode, we have a special segment called the Environmental Audio Challenge. For this segment, our featured guest gives a fun challenge for our listeners to respond to. Some examples could include things like asking an environmental trivia question, asking our listeners to share a creative idea that they have for solving an environmental problem, having our listeners compose and sing a short chorus to a song about an environmental issue, or wherever their creativity may lead them. So, Brett, do you have an environmental audio challenge you'd like to give to our listeners? Hmm. If you work for a company that provides a 401k plan or uh, you have a pension system with the country or state or city that you live in, or you have your own nest egg that you've been putting away for a while, my audio challenge is to find out what's in there. Do you know if you invest in fossil fuel companies? And I would advise you to start asking questions to whomever might manage your money. Go to your HR department, ask them who's our 401k provider, ask them to send me a list of holdings, and then let them know if you want, that you want to go fossil free. And can they provide you with a fossil free investing opportunity? And then let us know how it goes. All right. To respond to Brett's environmental audio challenge, please call our number at 415-887-887. 2367 and leave a message with your response. We'd love to hear your story and what you found out. Recorded responses will air on the next episode, so stay tuned. All right, well, thank you very much, Brett, for joining us. It has been a pleasure getting to know a lot more about your work and about the importance of divesting from fossil fuels. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's been fun. Tell me. Thanks for listening to Environmental Investing. You can go to environmentalinvesting.com to find the links from this episode's show notes, as well as back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. And now a message from this episode's featured musical guest. Hi, this episode's music is brought to you by Brian Lee and his orchestra. I am Brian Lee, and I play guitar and sing, and we hope you enjoy it. Oh.